Welcome to Deep Focus, a radio show about movies and New Haven. I'm your host, Tom Breen. On today's West Coast High School Romantic Comedy edition of the show, we'll be talking about a few movies that explore the highs, lows, and confused in-betweens of teenage life, mostly told from the perspective of young female protagonists. On the first segment of the show, I'll be joined by New Haven-based author, journalist, and podcaster Mark Oppenheimer to talk about two movies that have had a profound, profound. Going, going that deep, profound, profound. influence yes. on his understanding and love of cinema. Yes. Amy Heckerling's 1982 directorial debut, Fast Times at Ridgemont High, an ensemble high school sex comedy set in Southern California and written by Cameron Crowe, and Crowe's own 1989 directorial debut, Say Anything, which brings the teenage romantic yearning up the coast of Seattle and follows one unlikely couple in the tumultuous summer after their high school graduation. On the second segment of the show, I'll be joined by New Haven Arts Paper editor Lucy Gelman and New Haven Independent staffer Alan Appel to talk about Lady Bird, Greta Gerwig's new movie, also a directorial debut, about a 17-year-old in Sacramento, California, trying to figure out who she is in relation to her mom, school, friends, and city, all of which she desperately longs to escape from in order to start a new life as an independent adult on the East Coast, as we all do. Okay, but first, I'm very happy to welcome to the show Mark Oppenheimer. Mark is the co-host of Unorthodox, Tablet Magazine's weekly podcast about Jewish arts, news, and culture. He's the director of the Yale Journalism Initiative. True. Fact. True. Has written for the New York Times Magazine, Mother Jones Slate, among other publications. And Playboy. And was the author of the... And the Christian Century. (laughs) <laughs> and was the author of the New York Times Belief column from 2010 to 2016. And if that last name sounds familiar to all you WNHH devotees, he's also the husband of Sid Oppenheimer, who hosts Book Talk on this very network. Mark, thank you for coming thank on the show. You. It thank is you. a pleasure I'm to have you el- here. Elated to make my deep focus debut. Okay, so this is one of my favorite kinds of episodes, just talking with artists, yeah. writers, friends about the movies that they love. Yes. But first, I want to go back, back to the beginning, Mark. But, well, maybe... Part, uh, halfway to the <laughs> beginning, uh, and that is in. I was uh, I was reading some of your uh, your memoir and love letter to to words uh, uh-huh. Weisenheimer, uh-huh. Uh, and you talk about your uh, the the kind of challenges of being uh, a precocious with vocabulary, and mm-hmm. that if you're precocious with math, precocious with music, uh, you can kind of produce art at an adult level. But right. when you're precocious with words, there's not a lot you can do. Uh, with words, except just have to harangue become people. a smart aleck. Yeah, you debate and them. Yeah, a, a few movies that you reference in your kind of formative years as a Weisenheimer are Ferris Bueller's Day Off uh, and a Val Kilmer flick from the eighties that I'm blanking on the names of. Real but genius. I wonder, yes, that's the one. I wonder if you could start with as you know. I want to hear about your kind of your history with movies, but tell me about the the impact of. I don't know, people like Ferris Bueller or characters like well, Ferris Bueller on your love of cinema. Sure, you know, uh, teen movies, of which I am a noted scholar, uh, have a, um, they come in waves, right? And and the, uh, it's it's a relatively, if you go back to the 1950s, um, you know, the movies tended to be juvenile delinquent movies, right? So you you had Rebel Without a Cause or you had The Blackboard Jungle. You It was about, you know, if teenagers were seen as teenagers, it was because they were breaking laws. They were, you know, chewing gum or uh, smashing windows or getting in fisticuffs. And then, you know, you flash forward a bit. And in the mid 70s, there was a um, a vogue for 50s nostalgia. There was, you know, a kind of a 20 minute, 20 year nostalgia lag. So you had things like American Graffiti, which then moves into, uh, you know, Ron Howard then doing Happy Days. And, you you, you know, teens being seen in a kind of more roseate or or pleasant glow. Uh, and then you didn't have a lot of um, a lot more in the late seventies, early eighties until you get to some of the Brad pack movies of say, you know, 81, 82, 83, 84. And in that wave uh, there were a few actors 
who specialized in the role of the wise ass of the of the male smart aleck who was good at pranks who uh usually was smarter than the adults around him or her so on tv and in the movies you had michael j fox playing roles like alex b keaton on family ties uh you then think of the role that he you know in back to the future or um you know, secret of my success. Uh, Matthew Broderick specialized in these roles in war games in Ferris Bueller. Uh, Val Kilmer had a few of these roles. So it was the, the, the young, um, ma- geeky male protagonist who, um, that, uh, that, that, uh, you know, always knew a little bit more than, than the boss in the room, uh, knew more than the parents, knew more than the principal. Jason Bateman, uh, had a great run as this guy uh, on a short-lived NBC sitcom called It's Your Move, which everyone should really go watch if it's available anywhere. So there was that role in pop culture. When teen flicks came back in the 90s with actors like Freddie Prinze, they weren't playing that role. They were much more good-natured, and they didn't have the same sort of rebellious layer to them. So I And I don't know that we've ever recaptured that character that people like Bateman and Matthew Broderick and Michael J. Fox played in those movies. I and I think once we get to fast times, as you can tell, I care about this, as, and yeah. I think it's going to be all the more interesting when we get to fast times and say anything because I think those carve out a completely different model of what uh, a a teen, uh, how do. a teenager they do. kind of inter, uh, understands him or herself and also interacts with society at large. But tell me a bit a bit more about how you I what I couldn't quite get from at least the parts of Weisenheimer I've read thus far is how much you modeled your behavior after what you saw on screen or right. how well, much you saw validation. So what, right, if you're if you're a nerdy, you know, if you're a, a nerd verbal boy um then and, and looking for role models <laughs> there aren't a lot in culture you know if you're a, if in the early 80s you're you're part of the early personal computer vogue for example uh or you're really good at math coding things that i was not good at then all of the science community becomes your role model then then you think well i'll be albert einstein or i'll be jonas salk or i'll be um you know pretty quickly you you could be we were in the moment when people knew who jobs and wozniak were you could be the people making those computers, they were pop culture heroes. But if your gift was just for being really talky and using big words, who was your role model? So the argument I made in my book in Weisenheimer was that TV at the time in the early to mid eighties happened to give you, if you were a young, overly talky male and to some extent female, there were some female roles like this. Um, they happened to give you role models of how you could be nerdy, but cool. In other words, they, you could you could look at Michael J. Fox, who was you know five foot four if he was a day, and uh, and and was a kind of preppy, button down, young Republican debater type, and he made it cool on Family Ties. Just to take one example, Val Kilmer made that person cool in the movie Real Genius. The sort of wise ass, you know, he wasn't particularly good with the ladies, he wasn't particularly handsome, but he had a real way with words. He was clever, and he made that the coolest thing in the world in a movie like Real Genius. Nerdy but cool. I feel Nerdy like that. Cool. You made a career right. out of it. And you know what's funny is that today we, we've just come through a 10-year period where you know people would put on their personal ads that you know women would put, oh, I like the nerdy type. Or gay men would say, I like the nerdy type. Please wear nerdy glasses. Please have your head in a book. And that is almost a cliche now that nerdy is cool. That was not the case in 1985. Mm-hmm. In 1985, what was cool was you know Tom Cruise in all the right moves with his varsity letter jacket. So this was really subversive. Was, uh, so you grew up in Springfield, Mass.? Uh, you did you yes. go up? Did you grow up going to the movies with your family? Uh, oh yeah, hanging yeah. Out we went, VHS absolutely, store? absolutely. The important social cinemas. activity in your childhood. Yeah, we went to a lot of movies. We probably went to, I mean, I would say from the age of ten on, I probably averaged, if not a movie a week, certainly two or three movies a month. We went to the showcase cinemas in West Springfield, which is probably now called Rave or 
primetime or you know deep dive or bucket o popcorn cinemas but it was it was great it was it was a 12 plaques with four more screens across the street across the divided highway there were actually 16 screens that you could get to by taking one exit um off of route five so it, it was it was the bomb uh you have uh gone on to to write and talk and and think a lot about movies among other uh you know modes of popular culture and i wonder how you know as co-host of unorthodox if i movies factor into not every episode but maybe every other episode or maybe every third we episode, talk about movies a lot it, it, yeah they come I, mean, up, it's hard. I mean with with the the gal gadot era that we are in i understand <laughs> that it is a, a tiny topic but i've you know one of my favorite episodes was an interview with Stephen tobolowski oh did, my god um and you've also <laughs> spoke about how war for the planet of the apes is actually this great metaphor for uh, the Jews' uh, exile and finding of the promised land. But tell me about how movies factor into yeah. your work today. And we had David Duchovny on one episode, uh, one of the great half-Jews. Um, you know, I think that one of my co-hosts, Liel Leibowitz, um, on on uh, my podcast, which you can find on iTunes, Unorthodox, um, Liel grew up an only child in a dysfunctional family. His mom was a bit of a crazy person, and his father went to jail for being a famous bank robber. Uh, well, he went to jail for bank robbery, and having gone to jail, he became famous. Uh, he's actually Israel's most famous bank robber. And um, so Liel had a pretty a difficult childhood, and he was an only child, and he really retreated into books, movies, video games. I mean, every form of of um, pop culture stimulus that could take him out of the reality that he was living. He was a really needed escapism. So he has a very, very deep love and appreciation for movies, and then I also have a, a more, you know, a more amateur, but, but real love for movies. And, and our third host, Stephanie is, is also just a real pop culture maven and knows a lot, um, a lot, but she's younger. She, you know, is, is barely 30. So, uh, but I would say it would be impossible for me and Liel to do a podcast and not return to movies. Liel is also the only human being I know with a deeper, more, more complete knowledge of Beverly Hills 90210 <laughs> than I have. I mean, I really remember it well, but he remembers it at a deep, deep, deep granular level. So, so uh, you know, visual stories that that uh, explore California teen life seems to be very important to your uh, yeah, your well, cultural right, vocabulary. because that was the promised land. Everyone was happy in Southern California. That's right. Visual stories that explore California teen life. <laughs> and before I never thought of it that way, but well, sure, yeah, why not? And before we get to these two movies themselves, I want to ask one more question about your kind of background with yeah. uh, with movies, and that's you. You know, you've written, you have a PhD uh, in religion from Yale. You've I written do. a lot about kind of intersections of religion and culture. I wonder how often you've turned to movies in your, I don't know, more uh, scholarly or journalistic pursuits as a text for better understanding how, you know, popular culture and mainstream denominational religion, whether Judaism or otherwise, intersect. I mean, sometimes, you know, when I was writing my book about bar and bat mitzvahs, uh, you know, there I, I had a, a section on famous, um, on bar mitzvah and bat mitzvah scenes in TV and movies, uh, you know, a section that included reference to Sex and the City, The Wonder Years, The, Appren- the Apprenticeship of Dodie Kravitz, uh, and, and some others. And um, certainly if you're writing about culture, movies are an important, often give you important texts to write about. At the same time, I, my, my nightmare is being a film critic because the last thing I want to do is, is see the movies as work. And while I have great respect for people who maintain their love of the movies while also um, making it their job, I don't think that would work for me. You know, I'm much more in the Gore Vidal school. You know, he, he said once that um, – he said something like, I, I think the only time in my life, if I'm being honest, that I'm ever truly happy is when I'm at a movie. Mm. And that there's that level of escapism where the lights go down and it's dark uh, and you can just sort of, you know, you have the, the whole ritual of the previews and the popcorn and the movie and that the kind of bliss of just clearing the mind of, of all of the day's troubles that can happen when you're in the dark in a theater at a really good movie, I don't think is matched by anything else 
for me. But it's harder and harder as I get older to find movies that do that for me. And do you find it harder and harder the more the movies or the experience of watching movies migrates to smaller screens and I don't more watch kind that of many domestic movies. experiences I, you know, in movies? It's interesting. I think I'm probably probably not the only person of whom this is true, but now that almost all movies are available anytime, I don't watch that many movies anytime. I mean, I still um, try to get to the movie theater, you know, at least once a month, sometimes more, um, because it's just that's the experience I want. I mean, I will I will watch movies at home on my iPad or on our our TV, but um, but so much less than you would think. Well, let's uh, let's let's jump into the two movies that you have picked as ones that perhaps you sure. do return to on a regular basis, or they're so ingrained into your mind that you don't need to ever see it again. In order I mean, to I, recite I every I line. Um, but would, let me first tell the listeners that you're listening to Deep Focus on WNHHLP, New Haven's home for community radio. I'm your host Tom Breen, and I'm talking with uh, local author, journalist, uh, podcaster Mark Oppenheimer about two movies that have had a profound influence on his understanding and love of cinema. So. Uh, take take me into the the first of those picks, 1982's uh, Fast Times at Ridgemont High. I mean, Fast Times at Ridgemont High is in some ways the the urtext for all teen flicks. Um, for one thing, it's a true ensemble movie, as these movies tend to be. And that's something that goes overlooked when we talk about um, teen movies is if you want to see movies that have a lot of juicy roles for, uh, in the case of Fast Times at Ridgemont High, for men and for women, including men and women, as it happens of of different races, they're black characters, uh, as well as as well as white um, this town in Southern California, this part of the San Fernando Valley, um, they, for whatever reason, did not cast many Latino characters. But but that was probably the high school that, well, it's based on Cameron Crowe's actual high school. So uh, it is the urtext for a lot of teen movies. It's an ensemble movie. It makes good use of the soundtrack of the time of, of, of pop music. Um, it makes good use of car culture, uh, which is important to a lot of teen movies because cars are where you escape from your family. It, uh, like any good teen movie, it breaks open new careers. So it's the first important work for uh, Sean Penn, Jennifer Jason Lee, Phoebe Cates, Forrest Whitaker, Anthony Edwards from ER, Nicolas Cage. Uh, who am I forgetting? Uh, I mean, it's Judge Reinhold. Judge Reinhold. It, Eric Stoltz. Eric Stoltz. That one in, thank but, you. Is but one yeah, of, I mean, it's, it's, it is it's amazing. Unbelievable. Looking at this cast, especially, you know, I, I didn't even realize Nicolas Cage credited as Nicolas Coppola. In this credited movie, as Nicolas Coppola. Uh, that he was in it. I mean, he, right. has, he has quite the, the kind of small passing role, and yet uh, he makes an impression of oh, just about unbelievable. any kind of screen and, um And also, I mean, you, you've, you've gone through this litany of what makes uh, an affecting an effective uh, teen movie, but we haven't spoken about sex. I mean, there is yes. this movie is all about sex, all about how sexual identity is the most important signifier of who and what one is, uh, at least in the universe of Fast Times at Ridgemont High. Yeah, I mean, it's about, it's about both teenage boys and teenage girls owning their sexuality. Primarily girls, I would say. Primarily girls trying to get laid, being assertive. Um, it, it is, it is out of step with our current times in a couple ways. And I would say it's more advanced. One is, I don't think that there's a better, more frank exploration of, uh, of teenage girls, um, wanting sexual experience without shame, without, without fear, uh, you know, some nervousness and awkwardness, but really having the kinds of conversations that a lot of teenage boys are seen as having, um, one girl being more advanced than another, but the other one trying to catch up and the question of when do you lose your virginity and when have you done it? And when have you not done it? Uh, the risk of pregnancy, all of these things coming into play, I think in a really candid, um, empathetic way. Um, so that's number one. That's a way in which I, th- I don't know that anything that advanced is going on in the screen right now. I mean, I'm thinking of what was the movie that Aubrey Plaza was in where she and a friend are trying to lose their virginity. Um, uh, you know what I'm talking yeah, about, and, it, and that movie was yeah. like it was you know it was good comedy, but mm-hmm. it, it had nothing like the real heart 
um, that it was played for laughs and nothing like the heart that Fast Times at Ridgemont High has around the same topic. And then it's also more advanced in that, like, it'll actually just show nudity. Right. I mean, it's from that raft of early 80s movies, you know, like Porky's to take another example where like there are boobies. And, uh, you know, uh, and can we say, yeah, oh, can you say, (laughs) can we say boobies, uh, you know, and when men fantasize and when men, um, you know, uh, are, are having, uh, erotic, uh, solo moments that what's, what's passing through their eyes are actual naked women and that there might be naked women in real life and that, uh, and that that exists. Um, so I think that's, that's one of, uh, the, so this is my first time watching this movie. I, Loved it, was fascinated by it. And I think that, uh, you know, this coming at a time of kind of early 1980s uh, teen sex comedies, it does, you know, use nudity not just to titillate, but there's something in, in Crow's kind of screenplay and development of these characters that is very kind of wary of toxic masculinity yes. uh, first and foremost with this character of damone the kind of smooth talking uh scalper of yes van halen tickets i who, love that his, that his like side gig as a high school student <laughs> is a ticket scalper something that doesn't like a mall ticket scalper right. and, I he, mean, and he touts that as higher up in the social hierarchy than you know i think he says at one point i could have worked at 7-eleven and right right of course he, he winds he up working tickets. there at the oh, end and yet there's trick and, the, and, the, <laughs> and but there's um you know, there's. I, I was reading a, an interview with Crow uh, in Film Comment from the early 2000s. It came out around when when Almost Famous came out, which uh-huh. is his movie about early 1970s yeah. rock and roll. And in describing his uh, fascination and love for that era, he talks about how passionately naive and devoid of cynicism uh, the rockers were in this era, right before the kind of hyper commercialization yes. uh, of the music that he so he found so endearing. And I think that you know, if I were to read this back into Fast Times at Richmond High, I think there's a complete lack of cynicism to any of these characters despite the very brutal disillusionment that uh, Jennifer Jason Lee goes her character goes yes. through throughout the movie I mean she's I, I love when she loses her virginity at the the point, the point. this dugout when she's she's just staring up at this horrible light that's flickering in, in the dugout and she sees uh, graffiti saying surf Nazis <laughs> above this 26 year old I also like that the character she but she doesn't her... become jaded after no 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 and 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 it's complicated I mean she doesn't love it and it's not a great first time but she doesn't become jaded she still is looking for true love as the boys are looking for true love i mean not mike damone so much but his his sidekick ratner um so in many ways it's just a um uh you know and the first sex by the way is, is played as awkward and not that great it's just a very it, it's a kind of movie that today i don't think would get made i don't think it has i don't i think it's, there are ways in which we're afraid of that kind of candor or we're more the, the people are more cynical and therefore the movie is more cynical um i would also add that it's in a very great tradition again i'd put american graffiti here uh, and dazed and confused of real is the term picaresque like where you just go from event to event kind of like what what what's isn't, isn't that what what this, well this i i think picaresque is more roguish i think that's what okay that I see it as like a, but kind of like slacker what richard link later didn't yeah, where it's like you go from, from there's no one coherent plot right. it, well there is but it's really what really it is is like a day in the life like from scene sure. to scene to scene and mm-hmm. link later became very very good at that and yet each scene is so well developed and mm-hmm. so well sold that the whole movie has a kind of coherence of like treating a day in the life, you know, is based on Cameron Crowe's lightly fictionalized account of going back to his old high school and going undercover as a student. <laughs> right. Um, after graduating. After gra- right. he graduated very young. This is and this gets to almost famous where he graduates young, drops out of high school and or graduates and then follows a band on the road. Also something that really happened to him. And this I mean, this movie and the story is very specifically one completely devoid of adults. Right. This is entirely about yeah. teens in, in which teens kind of <laughs> do, explore kind of I love, you know, there are a few and maybe we'll get to Mr. Hand in a second because yes. the teachers are maybe the only adults, one teacher in particular. But 
I love how whenever Brad Judge Reinhold's character and uh, his sister, played by Jennifer Jason Lee, are at home, they're always talking about how mom and dad just left. They're yeah. gone for the weekend. They're never they anywhere. They're the pool. You know, there are no parents. The garbage. They're no parents. They're no parents. And I think it allows the and I think it, you know allows the kids to explore in a way that maybe movies today are not comfortable. Uh, in they're able to explore their sexuality in a way that is not shameful. Yeah. And they're allowed to make mistakes in a way that is not shameful. But also, I mean, this being a comedy. The repercussions are not too long lasting. I guess it depends on how you read the ending. I mean, it's not like these people are kind of skyrocketing out of their small town. No, I mean, California. they're going to end up, you know, they're working at the Mighty Mart. Yeah, they're going to end up like lower middle class white kids in the valley. And um, but yeah, it's 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 a it's um, when you think of movies that are just entirely teenager focused in more recent years, like like Harmony Korn's kids. The interest of, on the part of the director is the kid's dysfunction. And Cameron Crowe is not cynical that way. He's not cynical that way in Almost Famous. He's not cynical that way uh, in, in, in this. Um, I mean, you get, you know, Vanilla Sky is a pretty cynical movie. But he has a side of him that really is interested in people before they get disillusioned. And I think that's what's very powerful here, as, as does Richard Linklater, I would say. Um, I think that maybe American Honey, Andrea Arnold's movie from last year. I don't know if you caught up with that oh, one. I didn't but that, see that. that. Another sprawling. That one's kind of a two and a half hour odyssey across uh, kind of lower middle class white America uh, in the various. Walmart Is it worth parties. my time? Oh, it's incredible. Okay. Um, but it's you know it's one that you have to kind of sprawl along right. with. Um, the last thing I want to ask you about for well. Two last things. One about the music, the other about Sean Penn. Right. This, I mean, this movie is wall to wall with uh, with contemporary rock music. I yeah. love the the kick drum that we hear at the very beginning of the Go Go's. Uh, we got right. the beat, we got and the then beat. we hear yep. Tom Petty's "American Girl." We hear the Eagles, toilet, we hear Tom right, Petty. Eagles. Right. Um, I mean, is that? And I think that's something that Richard Linklater and Dazed and Confused is fascinated with as well. But I don't think of his movies as scored as heavily as uh, as the Cameron Crowe movies. I think that there's there's something where uh, in <laughs> maybe I don't know if Richard Linklater more of a thinking man's director than crow but but i think you know music is a jumping off point for I mean, exploring identity in, in days and confused whereas music is the identity and like the goad to do yeah. something provocative and i mean time. that was a period in time and i grew up in that period in time i don't think we're in it as much anymore i don't think teenagers are as defined by their musical taste i don't think clicks form around musical taste in the same way they used to i think which being a compulsive nostalgia i take to be a huge loss um i would point out that uh, this is also a strong interest of the director, Amy Heckerling, who goes on, of course, to make Clueless, which has a great soundtrack, a really terrific soundtrack, um, a more specific one, not as broad, not as top 40 driven, but, you know, has ska in there and has kind of some more hip hop. And um, but but Amy Heckerling is very interested in music as well. And I think it was a great what's so great about this movie is really the team. I mean, it's really that you have like Amy Heckerling making your first great feature movie, Cameron Crowe, uh, you know, writing it and based on his own novel. Right. Yeah. So it, it's, yeah. it's, it is, and they are both very interested in how music um, just really does course through the lives of these teenagers in Southern California. The, uh, the, uh, maybe we'll transition into say anything with this, but what struck me as so different about Fast Times from any of the movies you were mentioning at the top of the show, the Ferris Bueller's model of, uh, kind of verbose, uh, kind of anti-authoritarianism, uh, is that, you know, maybe the character who who talks the most and is the most anarchic is this stoner surfer dude played by Sean Penn. Yes, there's there's no there are no precocious kids in Fast Times or Richmond High, right? There's no one whose kind of intellect is is budding enough, and that yeah. and that is the source of their frustration. It's kind of it's all it's all physical in this, except for Sean Penn, who's you know I think that he gives a fantastic performance, but it really it jars with the rest of the movie for me, and that maybe he's the one he's the only one who's not. Maybe he's too on. He has he's, you know posters of naked women on his wall, but he's not the one he's, motivated by sex in the way that he's the else only is. one who's going to make it out, <laughs> right? Like he's actually going to end up, you know, 
He's going to end up somewhere. He might be at base right. camp at Yosemite trying to climb a wall, or he might be on a surf tour. Or he might, but you get the sense that he actually, I mean, he's the one who has decided high school is kind of bogus and that the world is bigger than that. But I never thought of it that way, but that's really, really true. Well, let's uh, let's move over to uh, Say Anything, oh, the, the, say anything. <laughs> the other movie that, that you uh, picked for. Did you like this one too? Oh, yeah. I, lo- I love both. Although I think initially I respond, you know, it's, it's kind of like the Pepsi or Coke challenge. I think Fast Times was such a sugar high that yeah. I thought this is the one that I prefer of the two, but Say Anything has has stuck with me a bit Sandy's more but great. 1989 again cameron crow uh directorial debut set in seattle john cusack and is it ioni sky ioni sky, ioni yeah. sky uh play well can you can you set it up a little bit and then tell yeah, me john about mahoney is her one. father oh. basically um there's this guy john cusack he's about to graduate from high school it, it, it's it starts with graduation from high school and his friends including one played by the great lily taylor uh are telling him you know look time's a waste and you got to ask her out um and He's had this crush on this girl named Diane Court, and she's beautiful and very cerebral. She's like a hot nerd. And so she's out of his league in two ways. She's too good looking and too smart. And he finally works up the courage to ask her out. And it's basically about his courtship of her and how they fall in love over the summer. Her father is against the relationship. They break up at one point. Then they get back together. Um, but she's going to England in the fall. She has a fellowship to go to England after high school. And um, the Reed Fellowship, if I'm not mistaken. Um and uh, and so from the outset, there's a great I, I couldn't quite tell if this was a class divide or an educational divide or how much of the difference so there is between she's the two, kind but, of upper middle class. He's lower yeah. middle class. His parents are military and they're off in Europe. And he and his sister, Joan Cusack, uh, his real life sister, are kind of raising each other. Um, she is kind of upper middle class. Her father owns a nursing home, which is an interesting job. You know, now these days when you want to give someone an interesting job, they're always an architect. And, <laughs> but John Mahoney later from Frasier and so many other things uh, plays her father, who is a, a small businessman and he has more money. And, and more taste, but has his own demons, as we discover. And um, so there's a class divide. There's an intellect divide. Basically, she has a future. Basically, she's going to at some point end up uh, at an East Coast elite school and make money. And he's he has no idea what he's doing with his life. His, his great goal is to maybe to be a kickboxer. Um, and he's kind of playing the same, you know, loser slacker that he played in Better Off Dead. I mean, Cusack didn't get a wide range of roles. He, he never really has. Uh, he's a great actor in, in the limited range of roles that he does. And he could do much, much more. But he's so good in his type that he gets that type. And, um, you know, sort of the way Tom Cruise always plays the brash young blank. You know, he's always the brash young something because he's good at that. And there, I mean, there's a kind of lanky, mopey sincerity to John Cusack oh. that I think is, uh, I mean, it's it's an incredibly romantic movie in the way that Fast Times is not. I yeah. think quite defiantly not. Uh, dis, I mean, despite this, this movie is... Um, so th- maybe the most iconic image from the movie is John Cusack uh, um, holding up this stereo plane. Uh, Please, it's uh, a boombox. I'm sorry. The, I'm going to give you the, the lingo the, of the time. The, the boombox or a ghetto plane, blaster, Peter Gabriel's yeah, uh, in, your eyes. in your eyes. Outside uh, her window, yeah, to and, woo her. Uh, I think that, I don't know, any any lover of cinema or anyone, you know, half familiar with... So you knew that icon- scene, but so you'd I, never I, seen the movie. I didn't know the scene, I knew the image. You knew and the actually, image. I was really surprised when I saw the scene because it played out very differently than I, what I was expecting. I was expecting this to be, you know, the grand romantic gesture that wins that, her at the end that well that wins her but also that leads to some kind of substantive interaction uh-huh. i thought that he's going to be standing out there she's going to look out the window right. and then they're going to come in and i don't know have sex or something but i think that it played you know in this in the way that crow and heckling are really interested in these male fantasies of sexuality in fast times where we have you know judge reinhold's character in the bathroom thinking about this right. girl getting out of the pool we have sean penn's character you know right. dreaming about these babes alongside him as he wins a surfing competition this is i i'm not completely convinced within the world of the movie that this actually happens or if it's just a fantasy of diane court because they don't make eye contact she doesn't get up from bed we hardly you know see 
Cusack move, all he's doing is standing there holding the boombox that is playing the song that played when yeah. they first had sex. And I think if Fast Times is so obsessed with male fantasies that maybe women experience as disillusionment, here's a female fantasy that, I don't know, is at the center of, of uh, pop oh, it de- romance. No, it definitely happens. I mean, really what it is, is he's much more romantic than she is. I mean, this is one of the winning things about, this is a way in which this movie is similar to Fast Times, right? In in Fast Times, you know, Mark Ratner is a great romantic and and he's kind of doing this romantic dance throughout the movie, this courtship with Jennifer Jason Lee, who really just, at the beginning anyway, just wants to lose her virginity, right? Um, Fast Times, you know, Diane Court at one point kind of resigns herself to a summer fling, but Don Cusack thinks that she's the love of his life. And he's the great romantic, and he has to prevail uh, prevail on her to see that he's worthy. And um, I just, you know, this movie, I have no critical distance on it at all. It got, you know, I saw it, um, I think it came out in 1986. 89. Oh, wait, of course, 89. I, so I was a, um, a, it was, I believe, the tail end of my freshman year of high school. Hmm. I Once it came out on VHS six months later, as things happened in those days, it was at any number of sleepovers. It was the first movie we rented. Um, boys, girls, you know, parties were like everyone stayed up late and watched a movie and then crashed. It, it was so omnipresent as a symbol of what we all wanted a die in court. We all wanted to be Lloyd Dobler. Um, and I was someone who like had um, uh, for a good bit of high school, a really um, profound episode of unrequited love that, um, you know, where I thought if I just could take the boombox outside her window, she would see. And I just I I think um and that Peter Gabriel song still, I mean, there's still a shiver when I hear In Your Eyes. It has not become corny for me. It has not become ironic. It's just pure romance. Um, and I think that Cameron Crowe is coming from a very um, uh, heartfelt place in, in that. And just to make one more tie to Fast Times that was quite visible to me watching these movies back to back is, again, that wariness of uh, masculinity that says that men can only exploit women for their sexuality. And if they are in any way hurt by women, the way that you get back at them is by sleeping with someone else or by disregarding them, you know, as people, uh, as, as equally, you know, worthy of respect. That's the that great, brief scene in which you know, he goes which, to the gas station and yes. you pan from, you know, teenage boy to teenage boy. And you Jeremy get Piven the, telling him, dude, you just got to sleep with one of her friends. <laughs> like, and, I mean, Jeremy Piven playing, playing, you know, Ari Gold avant la lettre. I mean, just so brilliant. All these, and then, and then when John Cusack is like, if you guys know so much about girls, what are you doing behind the gas and sip on a Saturday night? And Jeremy Piven says, uh, by choice. And then and it turns out that like actually the guys who are posing as the, the tough, you know, ladies men have, are just, just a bunch of losers, you know? And of course, I mean, we'll talk about a beautiful encapsulation of unrequited love when he's driving around his car moping in his trench coat and his clash t-shirt and yeah. speaking into the recorder yeah. all of the different uh, moments in the relationship that are now in the past uh it's, it's well, kind look, of a wonderful allusion to i don't know film noir style uh private eye well it's also around, that but, but cameron Crowe always has people in cars and he always has people in cars listening to music and reflecting and kind of just driving cruising around trying to figure things out there's there's um he doesn't have quite the bravery that Linklater does of just letting people have a lot of silence and a lot of just talkiness but there is a kind of bravery to the fact that he just will believes that drama happens uh i mean think of almost famous the scene in the bus where they start singing tiny dancer you know the he believes that like when you're just kind of driving around your mind clears and there's a a good song on the radio 
that that's when, you know, real deep reflection can happen. And I think there's a little bit of self-awareness of that discomfort with omnipresent noise in both Fast Times and Say Anything. If you remember, one of the bits of masculine advice in Fast Times is make sure you have the first side of Led Zeppelin 4 playing whenever you're going to make out with a woman. And then in Say Anything, an early scene, Lloyd Doppler starts his car and there's a very loud, blaring punk yes. song. Um, it should be said that Ratner gets it wrong and does not have the first side of Zep 4 playing. He's playing Kashmir. Yes, right. he's playing something different. And it's like he can't even get that right. <laughs> Uh, last thing I want to bring up uh, on Say Anything is probably my favorite part of the movie, which is the very end, the final sequence. Not, I mean, it's it's such an allusion to The Graduate to me, to maybe, mm-hmm. and even more kind of foundational, right. uh, not teenage, but kind of early uh, romantic yeah. comedy, in that you have, you know, this couple com- making a very decisive break with their past, getting yes. on this plane. And I, w- I won't give away the exact moment at the end of this movie, but, you know, we are left to think, you know, is this one small kind of symbol going to end? You know, it's so arbitrary if there's going to be a ding or not, whether or not right. that indicates that they're going to be, be okay. a successful couple or not. But yeah. it just threw me right back to the back of the bus and the graduate. And those I two hadn't going even off. noticed that till a friend pointed that out to me at one point after so, after a particular viewing. But um, uh, no, I think it's a totally perfectly realized movie. And like a lot, of, I don't think it got the credit deserved at the time. You know, you can go back and read the reviews of this. You can read there. It's one of those movies like The Big Lebowski where it was not immediately apparent to people how perfect it was. Uh, it was seen as like a B plus romantic comedy. And I think but but I will say I knew how perfect it was. I think 14 year olds knew how perfect it was. And we've kept knowing it, you know, into our 40s. Well, as a 29-year-old experiencing for the first time, I can tell you that it resonates as, as much. But That's great to hear. Mark, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's such a treat to have you. Where can people learn more about what you do? Listen to Unorthodox, um, follow Mark. I have a website, markoppenheimer.com, but really, if you want to hear more of me, and I hope I hope you do, uh, go to iTunes and subscribe to Unorthodox, which is Tablet Magazine's podcast. Uh, it's News of the Jews plus a token Gentile of the week. So what more could you ask for? Well, uh, we'll make sure to link to all of that uh, on Great. the deepfocusradio.com website. And uh, yeah, please come back. Thank you. It was you. a lot of fun. fun. All right. Uh, coming up next, a conversation about Lady Bird. First, let's hear a little bit of Ellison Jackson's song, Man from Lowell.
Welcome back to Deep Focus, a radio show about movies and New Haven. I'm your host, Tom Breen. On the second segment of the show, I'm very happy to be joined by uh, the New Haven Independent's Alan Appel and the arts paper's Lucy Gelman. Uh, so happy you could make it, Lucy, for a conversation about Lady Bird. Hey, Tom. Uh, so Hello. thank you, too. Welcome back. Happy Thanksgiving. Lady Bird, the directorial debut of actor... Greta Gerwig, best known for playing idealistic identity-searching young women in Noah Baumbach comedies like Frances Ha, Mistress America, and Greenberg. Uh, in her first film, Behind the Camera, Gerwig tells the story of Christine, played by Saoirse Ronan, a 17-year-old senior at a Catholic high school in Sacramento, California, who's given herself the nickname of Lady Bird because, well, why not? Uh, it's strange and eccentric in an environment that encourages obedience and conformity. It's independent and self-determined as opposed to handed down from on high by one's parents or god and it's uh, bizarre and a little bit body dysmorphic not quite a girl not quite an adult not quite human plus it's just kind of fun to say and makes for a strange student council campaign poster so the movie follows ladybird through all of the shape-shifting that comes with her final year of high school uh learning about herself through boyfriends sex romance frustration new girlfriends trying to be cool funny wealthy talented and of course applying to colleges and behind all this vortex of change are two constants her mom played by laurie metcalf whose love anxiety and mild disappointment rarely waver and sacramento a middling city that never fails to underwhelm ladybird who longs for inspiration at every corner uh so lucy as you watch ladybird did you find yourself yearning to leave behind the california capital and its complacent mediocrity for the vivacious east coast you midwesterner you uh or would you be content to spend another few years uh at this catholic school in sacramento trying to understand just who exactly lady bird is no i well i both but i i I completely understood lady bird's plight right she's a she's a teenager she's very anxious to get out of the place where she's grown up for her whole life. And as someone who grew up in the suburbs of Detroit uh, and attended a very, very toxic private school, I completely understood that. I, you know, I could probably see myself if I were a little bit braver doing a barrel roll out of the front seat of my parents' car. And, um, and yeah, I, I completely understood her urge to leave. Um, but I thought that it propelled the movie in this like, beautiful and graceful and for me utterly unexpected way so alan i think lucy gets at exactly what makes this movie so remarkable for me besides the you know performance of saoirse ronan and laurie metcalf but that tension between someone who so desperately wants to leave behind her hometown but so it's so a part of her at such a Mm -hmm. deep level that that she can never quite shake its influence her mom's influence her school's influence on who exactly she is she is not well, I don't know. She's Lady Bird. She's Christine. She's something in between. Uh, tell, tell me about your, I don't know, your reaction to this movie and why, why'd you love it so? Well, I did, I did love the movie. And it's interesting that, uh, that you, the way you um, uh, crystallize it there in, in, in those terms. I think the measure of my um, affection for it and the why, why I enjoyed it is because I didn't see any of those issues. I didn't experience it as an issue movie at all. I just um, almost immediately identified with the character and all of her um, 
you know, Mishigas, as they say in Catholic school. Um, and uh, be, because it's, uh, you know, it's it, it, it's all about uh, got to get out of Sacramento, which, of course, she ends up loving. But it also is it's very much coming of age. It's very much coming to terms with the nuns. It's very much coming to terms with boys, very much coming to terms with uh, friendship. I think what friendship is and, mm-hmm. you know, she ends up going to the prom not with any of these guys, you know, the only one of whom that she likes turns out to be gay. It's all about that. that, That's one of the most touching scenes. It's all about coming to terms with your parents. Uh, The Tracy Letts character as a kind of depressed guy losing his job and, and and the great affection between the two of them and the very different kind of love about the over-involved mother played by Laurie Metcalf. I mean, all those things, the reason, many reasons to love this movie, but it, uh, you know, I rarely experienced a film that has so much going on, so much going on, so seamlessly. Mm-hmm. And in such uh, an unassuming fashion, and right? S- this and is with, not and with such a flashy se- movie. With such means. self-effacement. And if I might ramble on a bit more, I just happened to be watching Scoop the night before the Woody Allen film with um, uh, Scarlett Johansson, who, you know, plays this young journalist. God knows what, uh, <laughs> what it, 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 there's as much about journalism in that movie as... Uh, a poke in the eye or something. But in that movie, which you can make the case is, you know, it's very Woody Allen-ish and there's a lot of humor, but every time there's a joke, the movie stops so Woody can make his joke. And this, of course, is my brief against Woody Allen in general. Here, Greta Gerwig is very funny. This script is very funny, but all, uh, uh, but much of the time, the, the humor is in the looks on the faces of the actors. It's in the, it's in the action. And the movie doesn't ever stop uh, so that you you can appreciate this stand-up joke. I think it's a, I think it's really, uh, you know, it's a little masterpiece. And Lucy, I think that Alan's right in identifying uh, Gerwig's uh, approach to humor in that she doesn't, um, she doesn't linger in it, and she doesn't draw a lot of attention to it. If anything, she doesn't give us kind of enough time. This movie mm. is so kind of. Uh, you know, quickly, there are a lot of jump cuts in this movie. There are a lot of kind of very quick ends to scenes, and all of a sudden we're in a different place with the same characters, and we're not quite sure of, you know, why and how that transition took place. But it's a moment where, the, I mean, of course, the, the scene that I'm thinking of is the opening one when Lady Bird, in the middle of a fight with her mom, de- decides to, you know, take the upper hand by throwing herself out of the, right. the, the front seat <laughs> yeah. of a moving car. And the, that scene, you know, of course, it could be quite a traumatic one, but it's so funny. And yet it ends so quickly, right? We we just see the mom's look of absolute terror and surprise. And then all of a sudden we're in the, the Catholic school and we see the cast on her arm. I think that this movie, you know, getting at what, what Alan was listening as what he appreciated about it is about, you know, showing how uh, expectations are just kind of defied at every single corner. And yeah. Maybe part of maturity is understanding that uh, whatever expectations you had about someone else or about yourself uh, are going to be defied again and again and again. And you need to come to terms with that constant flux. Um, is that, I, well, I want to ask you about the mother-daughter relationship because it's so sure. central and I think that's what I'm getting at. I mean, I think that the mom, maybe she, you know, has not quite matured to the level that Lady Bird has by the end of the movie because her expectations for her daughter are so out of sync with who her daughter is. Uh, how did you, how did you respond to this mother-daughter relationship? Did you, did it resonate with you oh as, my God, a, yes. as a daughter? Yes. As, as someone who I probably fought with my mom from the time I was 12, to the time I was 22 and um, and it so resonated with me and the very first thing I did after the movie was uh, text her to say I saw it and I had cried and and she texted back to say oh she had cried too and I don't know if if we would have wanted to see it with each other or if that would have been maybe too much but um, 
Yeah, I'm, I mean, I think this is a movie that is for everyone, but especially for mothers and daughters. If you're someone's daughter or someone's mother or both, um, it, you know, it it really hits home because I, I, I mean, I do think returning to your point that expectations are sort of defied at every turn. Yes, but also no. I mean, this this is a movie that in some ways is very much like it is a coming of age story that is unvarnished and very true. I I, I think so, and I think that that comes from that uh, I don't know the the honesty with which this movie takes in its approach to telling this coming of age story. It's kind of captured in uh, the epigraph, Alan. If you mm. remember, uh, the movie begins with a quotation from Joan Didion, right. uh, which is. Uh, anybody who talks about California hedonism has never spent a Christmas in Sacramento. <laughs> uh, and I think that, you know, it speaks to the immediate deflation of our expectations. You know, when we hear about, you know, Mark and I were just talking about Fast Times at Ridgemont High, which is Southern California, kind of nonstop sexual kind of titillation and uh, kind of wise crackery. Uh, there, there's certainly, I mean, she is an artistic and kind of intellectually ambitious person, but uh I think that at one point in this movie, you know, one of the chief nuns says, you know, maybe love is the same thing as paying attention. And I think that this movie is a demonstration of the validity of that statement and that she may not like Sacramento, but she certainly pays a lot of attention to it. Yeah. Well, that nun was quoting, a, you know, like a like uh, the, the, the major dictum of a famous American <laughs> philosopher, uh, utilitarianism, which is that uh, you define what you value by what you express an interest in. But, you know, to get back to the, uh, to the Joan Didion, um, two things. One, uh, I thought, I thought the movie was, uh, I, I thought the movie was going to be about Joan Didion and her daughter, <laughs> Quintana, in part because the Laurie Metcalf, the mother looks very much like Joan Didion. And I, I was, I was really, it took me two or three minutes to realize that, uh, this probably was not that, um, but I wasn't disappointed. And I, w w one of the things that strikes me about the, the richness of this movie is it, it's you feel that it's very autobiographical. Uh, I don't know anything about Greta Gerwig. So both Gerwig and Didion are from Sacramento. Well, what about the Catholic school? Not uh, it, it, that, that's wonderful also. And and the Catholic school there is, um, again, a counter expectations. I mean, it's a Catholic school at the prom, the, the you know, the, the chaperoning nuns are walking up and down the rows of right, the dancers. Six inches for the Holy Ghost. Six inches for the Holy Ghost. And this is, this is really wonderful stuff. And, and you know, and so it's very particular to, I, I think, one person's, uh, uh, you know, Bilden's Roman experience. But, you know, you don't have to go to Catholic school to appreciate the, the wonders of this movie. And, you know, and you don't have to have uh, you know, um, the, the, the exact uh, configuration of her family to appreciate the deny. It's really, it's really, I think quite, uh, quite a wonderful debut. Her first direct director her first film, job. Although right? she certainly made a name for herself as, uh, one of the most prominent young actresses in working in Hollywood today. And we've spoken about one of her movies, Mistress America a few years ago, but also right. Francis Ha, um, and a number of know about my movies. Well, she's tall and thin, right? Like, uh, like Ronan. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah. yeah she, it's, but it's, it's, her it's her same kind of mm -hmm. type. So I, she's uh, clearly casting somebody that <laughs> is a version of herself. 
Lucy, there, there, as always, we're quickly running out of time here, and there are two topics that I'm, I'm going to give you a pick between which you want to talk sure. about. Sure. One is the the class consciousness of this movie, and that she is very much, you know, she says quite explicitly, she lives on the other side of the mm-hmm. tracks, whereas many of the kind of social cohorts she's trying to ingratiate herself with are in these kind of palatial houses uh, in a wealthy area of Sacramento. Uh, and I think that much of her kind of identity crisis throughout the movie is trying to understand how can she maintain her dignity and still, you know, be someone whose dad is unemployed and whose mom is working, you know, late night shift. There's that. But then also the boyfriends. I feel like there's so many great boyfriends in this movie, uh, two in particular, one played by Lucas Hedges and one who is constantly reading Howard Zinn's uh, The right. People's oh, History. I'm going to go with the but boyfriends. Go, all right, tell me about what you like about the, the boyfriends. <laughs> oh my what, God. What are, I mean, what, I loved, what is I the role both of, of them. You know, what role do boys play in this movie in helping Lady Bird understand what, you know, who she is as a young woman? Well, it. I mean, at the end of the day, this is like it, it's a coming age, coming of age comedy and drama that's just done super, super artfully. Right. And I think, you know, I think there are multiple ways to play it. Could Gerwig have played it that Lady Bird was discovering her sexuality and she wasn't sure she was straight? Sure. But then we're talking about a different movie entirely. And so I think with this, I mean, I found it so funny because you all, you almost... By you, I'm talking to, I think, the young women listening to the show or, or the now 20 through 40-something women listening to the show. I kind of jogged my memory and thought like, oh, yeah, maybe I would be into the weird guy with baggy pants who sprung out onto the stage singing something from Merrily We Roll Along, you know, right? Um, and this is so my first boyfriend was gay. My, my like middle school boyfriend is or is gay and is very out. Um, and, and so, and I went to the prom with my best friend and, and so all of these things, but I think, um, and I think that, I mean, the movie, that's one of the most affecting parts of the movie. Alan referenced it earlier when this, you know, ex-boyfriend comes out to her, uh, and pleads oh with God. her not to it's tell so his affecting. parents. It's so uh, affecting. Immediately you burst into, I mean, this is, when I say the movie is so unexpected and done so well, there is comedy that is just so, so funny. But then there are these moments where you feel your... I mean, if you don't feel a knot in your chest watching right. some parts of this movie, I, I'm really... I, I would be surprised. That that part immediately got to me because not only are you seeing how vulnerable she is and how she's willing to leave being catty behind quite quickly, but how vulnerable he is. You know, we're talking about being gay and closeted in high school, which is a really tough time in a Catholic school. And I think but, that if, right. uh, I'm going to give you the last word, Alan, but if that scene captures one thing for me, it's how the movie is not willing to kind of take advantage of or just use a secondary character mm-hmm. for the purpose of the development of the primary character. Totally. And that we, you know, this is not a way for her to understand that, you know, uh, she has to move on to the next guy or maybe she needs to be kinder to people who are also going through their identity crises. He gets his moment in the scene, right? He, We understand that he is a, another fully kind of autonomous individual existing in this world. And I think it's kind of an empathy building moment, but I, I want to give out, unless... Was well, there one well the com- can I, I just say, the there, there are like, there are the two guys that she's very into. And I love that behind that, you have the ba- backdrop of Justin Timberlake and Dave Matthews. And that is so like it just speaks to how every detail in this movie is so well played. Alan, final word. Well, there are also uh, the, the pleasures of many set pieces that are, are really wonderful. So if you go to see it, don't miss where the, uh, the, the regular person directing the school play is not available. And they have the football coach <laughs> directing the actors, hysterical 
Two minutes. <laughs> and his response to the <laughs> successful completion of the play. Yes. That's Alan right. and Lucy, thank oh, you so much so for good. coming on the show. Everyone go out, check out Lady Bird, and we will catch up with you next week. Bye, Another Tom. episode of Deep Focus.